We have two short Bible readings today. The first is from Colossians 4, verses 5 and 6. Be wise in the way you act toward outsiders. Make the most of every opportunity. Let your conversation be always full of grace, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how to answer everyone. Our second reading is from Luke 23, verses 39 to 43. One of the criminals who hung there hurled insults at him. Aren't you the Messiah? Save yourself and us. But the other criminal rebuked him. Don't you fear God, he said, since you are under the same sentence? We are punished justly, for we are getting what our deeds deserve. But this man has done nothing wrong. Then he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. Jesus answered him, Truly, I tell you, today you will be with me in paradise. Well, today we begin our annual vision series, and it's something we've been doing since we've begun, and that is to focus on the vision that we have for our church. One of the first things we did when we started forming Mary Creek was we worked, we get gathered weekly as a team, a leadership team in 2013, and we around breakfast on a Friday morning and we worked out what kind of church do we want to be. And that was a whole process that we went through. And what we came up with was, as we developed a vision, was not so much a vision in the way that you see it in that kind of, um, in a corporate business sense, but more in a monastic sense. Um, It's kind of like a monastic rule that we came up with, but we don't call it a rule because we know everyone would be scared off um, if we advertise that Mary Creek has a rule. But it's like a religious rule. Like, for example, if you become a Benedictine monk, you, you basically make a vow to the Benedictine rule, a vow of poverty, a vow of chastity, a vow of obedience. So our vision is kind of like this concept in that it's a picture of an ideal community that we aim to seek to be. They're not rules in the sense that no one's making any vows or anything, but, you know, they are an image of the kind of community, the posture that we have. Um, So here's the vision. You can see it up on the screen. Um, Imagine a church community uh, that cultivates an open and charitable dialogue about Jesus with the no-religion tribes of Melbourne's inner north. Imagine a church community whose active and transformative presence is dispersed in the neighbourhood like yeast Indo. Imagine a church community that nourishes spiritual seekers and inspires creatives. And today, we're going to focus on the no-religion tribes of Melbourne's inner north, first of all, and then talk about what it means to have this charitable, open and charitable dialogue um, about Jesus with, with, with those no-religion tribes. So what are we talking about when we say the no-religion tribes? Well, let me just show you, break it down a bit. Um, sociologists call the people that tick no religion on the census, they call them nuns, as in N-O-N-E-S. It's kind of a play on words, obviously. And nuns are the, the fastest growing religious group in the West. And America is, is noticing, I think, for the first time in history, more than 50% of America are, are not affiliated with a religious institution like a church or a synagogue or a mosque. And in Australia, we're ahead of them. So what are we talking about the no-religion tribes? Well, in the 2016 Australian census, about 30% of adults in Australia identified as no-religion. And in our local area, you can see 
um, a breakdown of that, we're, we're far higher than the, um, the average of Australia. So Abbotsford, 49.8% um, say no religion. Uh, Clifton Hill, where we are now, is I think the highest in the country, 55.5%, and Fairfield Alfington, 49.4%. And Abbotsford is, I know, is boosted because of the Catholic population there, give them a boost. Um, but the second highest religious affiliation in Abbotsford is Buddhism, then Anglicans under Buddhists, whereas in Clifton Hill it's flipped the other way around. Um, a, two, a 2017 academic study from Monash Uni and Deakin Uni, uh, the two academics, Gary Boomer and Anna Halifoff, they, they did some research into the no religion group, the nuns, and they looked at what, is it, what, are, what are they actually like, and they did the study in the city of Stonington, so it's slightly different to us, but you get a basic kind of picture. And for those no religion people, that 36% of them said religion was not important, was completely unimportant. 25% of them said it was of little importance to them. 54% of them say they never pray at all. And 68% of the no religion group say they never or less than once a year attend some kind of religious service. Now, in the, obviously, this, the, the numbers in, in, in uh, the city of Yarra or Wills if, as well, if you want to think about there, are probably slightly different, but it's pretty much the same. And the majority of no religion people, according to the research, are just to th those people to whom religion is meaningless and a very small percentage are actively anti-religious. Then for those who are under 30, the researchers label that group as the whatevers. Um, that's the official title, the whatevers, under the under 30s in terms of the if they, are, if they tick no religion on the census. And what they mean by whatevers is not so much indifference to religion or even ignorance, but the, the sociologists say that they are awash with options. There's, a, there's a, a, a sea of diversity. They're adrift in a sea of diversity. And they call it, um, the academics call it a super diversity. So many options. Um, the under 30s are like, it's fine for you to do what, what you want to do. There's just so many options. I have no idea. And for the most part, the under 30s are more respectful of religion than you would think. It's just that they don't get involved. Now, as I've lived in North Fitzroy, which, uh, whose stats are pretty much identical to Clifton Hill, same postcode, I've discovered a few things about the nuns just through getting to know nuns. Often they're brought up in a religious family have gone to a religious school, or might even have described themselves as spiritual but not religious. They might even be what you call church adjacent, which means they have friends that are religious or Christians, but have not pursued faith themselves. They might be religiously curious even, and be willing to explore faith if the, option, if the chance arises. So the point is, we should not naively rule off people because they say that they're not religious as being all the same. People are at different places. And I, I would say often they're closer to the kingdom than many religious people I know in terms of their, their, their seeking out of, of spiritual things in God. But they don't affiliate with any institutional religion. At Mary Creek, we are motivated by a desire to be not only relevant, but to, to be there for the no religion tribes. 
We don't want to be disconnected from them like we're in a, some kind of Anglican religious bubble or something. We want to love the no-religion tribes. We want to serve the no-religion tribes. And most importantly, we want them to know Jesus. We want to have a, a kind of a gracious posture to the people around us. These people are our friends. They're our family members. They're our colleagues. They're our friends at school. They are the parents that we stand next to while picking up the kids at school, the shopkeepers, the people exercising in the gym next to us. There are are many churches that fear the rise of the no-religion tribes. They call them the left or secular. Some think they are angry against the church or have an agenda to shut the church down. I've not found this to be true. There might be one or two people like that. There might be small groups around that are angry towards the church, but the vast majority are not. We want to be open and charitable. So what does that actually mean? Let me just put up the Colossians passage because basically our idea of open and charitable comes largely from this kind of concept expressed here by Paul. Let me talk about this passage. These two verses come from Paul's letters to the, letters to the Colossians. And in this letter, he, he writes about how Christians can flourish and make a, a life that has an impact. This is the life of love and grace and reconciliation and peace. The kind of life that Flick talked about last week when she talked about resurrection life. That's what Paul's talking about here. And earlier in the letter to the Colossians, he discusses the family and the household as a great place where Christians can flourish and make an impact. Um, And then in chapter 4, he turns his gaze away from the household to the outside world, and he shows how Christians can flourish and make an impact there as well. And he's just asked them to pray for him and his colleagues in their evangelistic ministry to the world, and now he says, and you can participate in this evangelistic ministry too, and he points to the Colossian church, he says, you have a role as well to play. And in these two verses, Paul says that they should make every opportunity for witness when they're out in the world. And also when they do this, they should be sensitive and gracious in the way they um, encounter people and communicate the good news of Jesus. And so what he's actually describing here is a kind of responsive ministry. Often you can think of all the bad examples of Christians in the world um, having a ministry and they're forcing it down the throat of people and they're bashing, you know, like the Bible basher kind of concept. But actually, Paul's not talking about that at all. He's saying, when you're out there, be ready and when the opportunity arise, arises, be ready to respond. Position yourself so that if someone invites you, you can, you can respond and talk about Jesus. He says they should get good at answering questions when they get asked. He's he's not saying hold back, be softly, softly, softly so that nobody even notices that you're there. No, he's saying the opportunities are all around you. You have to just be willing to speak up when you are called upon. And this is a privilege. It's a huge responsibility. And you have to be wise about how you go about this. So this is how he begins in verse 5. Be wise. Be wise in the way you act towards outsiders. What needs to happen as you relate to 
people, the no-religion tribes or the people out in the community, is that a revelation about the, the judgment and the salvation of Jesus Christ needs to be made, and that is huge. And so you need to be wise in the way you conduct yourself. They need to walk in wisdom. They need to act wisely and live wisely. They're handling the precious jewels of the kingdom. When I used to do youth ministry, we used to say all kinds of dumb stuff. And here's an example of some dumb stuff I used to say and I'm embarrassed about. I remember saying in front of, you know, probably year seven to nine kids, something like this. Think about how excited you are, guys, about when you, t- when you get a new iPhone and how excited you are to talk about it to everyone. Think about how excited you are when your football team wins on the weekend. Think about how excited you are when you get a new girlfriend or boyfriend. You just want to tell everyone, well, why don't you talk the same way about Jesus? It's because you don't really love Jesus as much as you love your stuff. Now, that was the sort of dumb stuff I used to say. So dumb. It's what you call lameministry.com, starring Peter Caroline. And here's why it's lame. It's, it's lame because when you're talking about your new Xbox or the fact that the Bulldogs is completely dominating AFL right now and winning every weekend, or because you're talking about, you know, your new girlfriend or boyfriend, it doesn't actually require much wisdom to have that conversation. It's very easy in a, in a lot of ways. But when you have conversations about Jesus, about the truth of the universe, about what is good and evil about sin and judgment, about forgiveness, about the cross, about resurrection. Now that requires wisdom. So it's a completely different kind of order of conversation. Xbox conversation, low order. Gospel, high order. So that's why my strategy back then was lame. For us to be talking about Jesus requires wisdom. And so we need, we need, to, need to be constantly praying that God would give us wisdom in the way we conduct ourselves towards those in the community, that we would develop this wisdom, that we would see opportunities when they arise and that we would speak with emotional intelligence, that we would know how to be pastoral. People are often longing for pastoral conversations and sometimes we are a little bit shy to enter into them because we think we don't have anything to offer. All this requires wisdom. And I know what it's like. You find yourself talking to someone and they start sharing with you and you think to yourself, I sense that they want me to talk about my faith, but I just don't know where to begin or I don't know what to say. Well, you're not on your own. It's, it's at that point you, you ask God for wisdom and he gives it to you. So Paul says to the Christians in, in the Colossian church, don't hold back. Make the most of every opportunity. Use your time well. The phrase, make the most of every opportunity, reads also as this kind of phrase, buy up the time, buying up the time. And Paul um, borrows this, he steals this phrase from the story of Daniel, who had to interpret the king's dream. The king's magicians had rushed in and given a lame, Peter Caroline, lame.com answer to the, the king's dreams, and it was completely hopeless. And Daniel says... He asked the king, can you give me a bit more time so that I can give you a good answer, so that I, can, I, I might declare the interpretation to the king. So God gives Daniel wisdom so that he is able to reveal the mystery of the dream. Daniel uses his time wisely. So the Colossians should not use their time poorly 
and rush into things like the king's magicians, but they should be like Daniel who sought wisdom from God but still responds and still is there for, for the king and effectively witnesses to him. This concept of limited time is not so much about you and, you know, you've only got one life and you're going to die soon and so you better hurry up and use your time well. It's not so much about that. It's more about Jesus is going to return. It's thinking about the future of of the kingdom and what God is doing. Having said that, thinking about you and your life and the limited time you have is not bad. It's not a bad thing. When you are on your deathbed, wouldn't it be good to be able to say to yourself and to God, I may not have been the most articulate Christian in my life, but I did my best with my friends and neighbours. I took every opportunity to tell them about Jesus. That's one of the goals of my life. That's why I don't give up Anglican ministry and become a a record producer or run a second-hand record shop in North Fitzroy, which I would love to do, because I know that God has wired me up to lead churches and to start plant churches and that's probably the best way I can use my time well to take every opportunity. Now, not everyone has to go into full-time paid ministry to use their time wisely, although some people definitely should, but we all should seek to have a full-time ministry in whatever we're doing, making the most of every opportunity, whatever context we're in. Then in verse 6, Paul says, when you take that opportunity, learn to speak attractively so that you can respond effectively. Let your conversations always be full of grace, seasoned with salt, so that you may know how to answer everyone. Here he explains how they're to act with wisdom as they make the most of every opportunity to communicate this mystery of Christ. And he says, first of all, you should have speak with grace. It needs to be attractive speech. God's grace should flow through your conversations. And you need to do this all the time. You can't be part-time with your grace. You can't, it's not like a tap that turns off and on. It's permanently on. You can't have a potty mouth, for example, and then talk like an angel when you're talking about Jesus, when you're sharing the gospel. You can't expect the mystery of Christ to have a huge impact on someone if you're just a potty mouth one minute and then Jesus minute, the next minute. It doesn't work like that, says Paul. You can't boast to the co- your colleagues at work about how you got wasted on the weekend and then in the next breath invite them to church and expect them to have a good response. They'll look at you and go, you hypocrite. You can't be a bully to the, the students at school and then invite them to your lunchtime group, your Bible study, and expect them to want to come. Why would they respond to a bully? In Ephesians 4.29, Paul makes a similar point. He says, Do not let any unwholesome talk come out of your mouths, but only what is helpful for building others up according to their needs, that it may benefit those who listen. So Paul's saying be winsome, seasoned with salt. If you're into cooking, you know a bit of salt adds a lot of flavour. And so your words that are gracious add a lot of flavour to your, to your relationships. And Paul is making an argument that that is what is going to really make a difference in your ministry to people. doesn't necessarily matter how sophisticated your arguments are or how 
articulate you are or how much ed sort of education you've had or whatever, or how charismatic you are even, what really will make a difference in your ministry to people around you is your grace, gracious actions. Now, let me give you a bit of a nerd alert term. Partly what we're talking about here is having epistemic humility. That's the nerd alert term. Epistemology is the study of knowledge. And so we have humility when we listen to people, when they talk to us about their different ideas, their understandings of religion, of their, their worldview that's different to ours. We listen in humility. We, we learn to stop talking so much and learn to start listening. When I was at high school, I used to love arguing my, with my friend in maths about what's wrong with evolution and why the, the Bible says it's wrong, you know. And I just didn't have epistemic, epistemic humility. <laughs> um, I just needed to learn to listen to my friend and just be full of grace. Martin Luther King called this having a non-anxious presence. Now, don't get me wrong, this doesn't mean that we have no opinion and that we just nod our heads like some expensive psychotherapist who you pay $200 an hour to to go, hmm, tell me some more. What do you think? Now, that's not what I'm talking about. What we need to have, according to Paul, is gospel confidence. This means we need to trust that when we talk about Jesus, when it comes up, when we make the most of every opportunity, that that will have impact and have power doesn't matter how awkward you feel. Have confidence that God will use your words to transform people's hearts. Look at what Paul says. He says, do it so that you, will, you know how to answer everyone. In your conversations with people, have this posture and tone of grace and then you'll be more likely to have responses that build up and encourage your friends. Peter says something similar in 1 Peter 3, verse 15. But in your hearts, revere Christ as Lord. Always be prepared to give an answer to everyone who asks you to give the reason for the hope that you have. But do this with gentleness and respect. His argument is intriguing. He's clearly saying that the power of your conversations comes not so much from sophisticated words or highly emotional words or even prophetic language, but comes from how much you live out the gospel of grace and love people as you communicate the gospel of grace. In 1 Corinthians 10, verse 31 to 33, he says it a different way. He says, So whether you eat or drink or whatever you do, do it all for the glory of God. Do not cause anyone to stumble, whether Jews, Greeks, or the church of God, even as I try to please everyone in every way, for I am not seeking my own good but the good of many, so that they may be saved. So this is not a posture of weakness, but of confidence. The Christians in the Colossian church should not be on the defensive against the world around them, and neither should we. We should be confident in the marketplace of, of ideas. And as we do this, we should be living out our faith. Now, what we are talking about is a rule of life for our church here. When we say we want to have an open and charitable dialogue about Jesus with the no-religion tribes, it's a rule of life. It's how we speak and it's how we relate and how we position ourselves to the world. It's how I try and teach and apply the scriptures to our lives in a non-defensive posture, in a non-anxious posture, in a gracious posture. 
It's how we speak in our community groups about the world. It's how we relate to people at work and school. And we have a few strategies in our church to try and promote this occurring. We have our ministry in our church called, or our, which we used to call the Festival of Crossing the Isle, and now it's just an ongoing thing that we try and find opportunities to cross over the aisle into and meet with people from other subcultures than ourselves so that we can get to know people and learn from it. And this is a, con- a context where we really have to apply our open and charitable grace field, salty speech, epistemic humility, non-anxious presence. That's what we have to do. If you're involved in one of our playgroups, you'll know that Beck was saying last week, I think there was like 26 people at playgroup, the North Troy one, and, you know, that's huge. There's so many opportunities every week. You know, be ready to talk and to respond if, if people are crying out for, for God. And they might not say it in an obvious way. It might just be subtle. With your neighbours, act wisely with grace and charity. And when you do, be confident in the gospel and take every opportunity. This concept is actually not just some, you know, nice Christian idea, but it's hardwired into the gospel. Being open and charitable is embedded in the good news of Jesus because it's all about God's love to the outsiders, people who don't deserve forgiveness. You and I don't deserve our salvation. We haven't earned it, but it is a free gift of God to all those who want it. Jesus says in his letter to the church in Laodicea, famously in Revelation 3, Here I am, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with that person and they with me. Jesus has the posture of grace and open. He has the open and charitable posture. And he's been open and charitable towards us. And when Jesus did his ministry on earth, he met with tax collectors and sinners, marginalised people, women who had been shamed by society, men who were poor. He gave them life. And the only people that Jesus was not like this towards were actually the religious people who were actually the opposite of open and charitable. When the angry and hostile crowds hurled insults at him, he responded in grace saying, Forgive them, Father, for they know not what they do. A posture of grace. And even up until his last breath, he took every opportunity to speak life-giving words to those around him. So let me close this morning by reading these words again from his conversation with the two other criminals on the cross. One of the criminals who hung there hurled insults at him. Aren't you the Messiah? Save yourself and us. But the other criminal rebuked him. Don't you fear God? He said, since you are under the same sentence, we are punished justly for we are getting what our deeds deserve, but this man has done nothing wrong. Then he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus answered him, truly I tell you, today you will be with me in paradise. Let's pray. Lord God, we thank you that you have given us this great opportunity to respond to the world around us. We pray that we can maintain this and keep pursuing this posture in our church. We pray that we do it um, with humility and also with confidence. And most of all, that we will make an impact on the world around us. Amen.